Mark chapter 4. We'll begin reading in verse 35, and this morning we'll move into chapter 5. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces." No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described it to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends, And tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. Our God and our Father, we look to you this morning and we recognize that our great need is to be those who are brought to this place of standing before you in great awe and great marveling. Lord, we need help in this. 
We're not prone to this on our own, and so we ask for the aid of your spirit. We ask that you would accomplish that through your word this morning. We pray very simply, but in all faith, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. Unite our hearts that we might fear your name, and Lord, that you would satisfy us with yourself, we pray. Amen. What are you afraid of? What is it of all things that you fear most? Depending upon the particular survey that was taken and the results that you read, you will find that most people at the top of that list will either fear spiders, snakes, um, great heights, and of course the fear of public speaking often top those lists. But what about within those lists the fear of God? The teaching of Scripture consistently reinforces the necessity of us, as his creation, to fear the Lord. How many times in your Bible have you seen, read, heard, or perhaps even underlined the fear of the Lord? And what is said within those portions of Scripture? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is to turn away from evil. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life and prolongs life. The one who fears the Lord is to be praised, and we could go on, consider, and to meditate. And as this emphasis upon the fear of the Lord is before us, I bring this up because it is the thematic cord that ties this section of Mark's gospel together. In each of the four accounts that run through chapter 5, we are given this emphasis of fear, or specifically fearing God, and Mark pulls them together for our consideration. We read two of them this morning, but there's two more that follow. Notice back in your Bible, verse 41 of chapter 4, that just simply says, the disciples were filled with fear. And look down at verse 15 of chapter 5, where we read that the herdsmen and the townspeople were afraid. Skip ahead to verse 33 of chapter 5. For it's there in this account that we read that the woman with the discharge of blood comes with fear and trembling before Jesus. And then lastly, down in verse 35, Jesus counsels this father, Jairus, not to fear, but only to believe. Church, what are we to do with this emphasis upon fear? Perhaps even as a parent, you have counseled young children, say, you do not need to be afraid. You do not need to fear. But what would the Bible counsel us to do? How should we be thinking about fear? How are we meant to understand the place of fearing the Lord alongside the mercy and the goodness of the Lord? Should I fear him or should I not? We'll find out. These are some of these primary lessons that we are confronted with here in our text. Mark would have us to see not only the necessity of fearing God, but the absolute comfort that comes in fearing him. And so what I want to do this morning is consider how this fear of God is unfolded before us through a lesson within a storm and then through the liberation from an unclean spirit. There's a lesson within the storm and this liberation 
from an unclean spirit that will help us better understand the fear of the Lord. Look back at the end of chapter 4, where we're given this lesson in a storm. I think what is worthy of noting here is that one of these great displays of the sovereign wisdom of God is given to us in the gospel so often how the Lord is doing more than one thing at a time. He tells them to get in the boat because he needs to get to the other side. He is going to meet this man from the tombs. But simultaneously, he's telling them to get in the boat because these men need to learn something along the way. And so we have this two paralleled um, purposes running side by side, and within it we're given this lesson. Notice the description of what's happening there as Mark sets it up for us in verses 35 through 38. The location, these men are on the Sea of Galilee. Sea of Galilee sits at about 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by various rolling hills and mountains, not unlike the territory and the climate around here in Folsom or Newcastle, rolling hills, and then this lake in the middle of it, 700 feet below sea level. But just 35 miles to the north sits Mount Hermon, which is at about just over 9,000 feet in elevation. So what we've learned through meteorology and over the years is that because of the peak of that mountain and the cool air that resides up there and the lowness of the lake, the warm air that resides there, it's actually quite typical for the warm air to rise to meet the cool air and then all of a sudden these great windstorm pummels down upon this lake. All that to say that these sort of windstorms were really quite common on the Sea of Galilee. And we're told that these men are in the middle of this lake, in the middle of this wind, in a boat. Now don't think too highly of that statement. They were in a boat. And if you go to Israel today, there in Galilee, you can actually see one of these fishing boats that were unearthed from first century Israel that was preserved almost perfectly in the silt of the Sea of Galilee, extracted, cleaned, and put on display. And you see that's the sort of boat these men were in. And you can stand there and look at it without really even having to turn your head to the left or the right because it's really only about 25 feet long, about 8 feet wide, the sides being at about 5 feet tall, designed to hold roughly 15 men upon this lake. And it is upon a lake like this and a boat like this that these men find themselves. Now remember, many of these men are fishermen. All of these men are local. That would mean that the sort of scenario that they're in, in some ways, is not that obscure, especially for the fishermen. How many storms would they have found themselves upon this very lake in a boat almost identical to this? But Mark tells us this was not just a storm. He uses this word great. He says in verse 37, this was a great windstorm. The waves are washing over the bow. The boat is beginning to fill up with such intensity that it becomes clear as you look at one another's faces, we might not make it out of this. Have you ever been in a situation where the fulcrum pivots and you begin to realize this isn't just risky, this isn't just a little exciting, I might die here. That was the very real thought in each of these men we might actually die, prompting them to say what? Teacher, 
Do you not care that we are perishing? What causes these men to say this? Think about it. Certainly at this point, they have seen the miraculous power of Christ on display. They have seen him heal lepers. They have seen him heal the sick. They have seen him cast out demons. They have seen paralyzed men restored and walk. They know something of the authoritative power of Christ. And yet, this is different. Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, given all that they had seen, given all that they had heard, all that they knew about Christ, why do they respond to their circumstances like this? Why do they speak to Jesus like this? Well, Mark gives us not only the description, he does give us the diagnosis. Look down in verses 39. What is the diagnosis? Why do these men respond this way? He awoke rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm, and he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now, if you were an observer, say perhaps on the shore watching this all go down, you would conclude that the problem here is that these men are in a storm. And if you were one of the disciples in the boat, you would have concluded, no, our problem is that Jesus is asleep. But Jesus, according to him, concludes that the real problem is a lack of faith. Not the storm, not the fact that he's catching up on some sleep, but their lack of faith. The assumption of the disciples was this. Christ's inactivity reflected his lack of care for them. Verse 38. Obviously, they knew enough about Jesus to know that he could do something here. But he's doing nothing. They know something of his greatness, after all that they've seen. But at this moment, what are they doubting? His goodness. Do you not care? That implies that you could do something. You could do something, but right now you're asleep, and therefore you're doing nothing, and therefore, do you not care? Do you not care that we are perishing? What we've concluded, teacher, is that you're actually a callous teacher. You're indifferent to our circumstances. You're uncaring. You're uninvolved. You don't care that we're perishing. Wake up. Now, pause for a second. Do not overlook the arrogance of that statement. The creatures are rebuking the creator. Don't lose sight of who is in this boat. The creatures are rebuking the creator. The skilled fishermen, the hometown locals, are questioning the eternal one who said, let there be light, and there was. These fishermen are questioning the creator who separated the waters and created the wind. Do you not care? That is what is happening. Friends, let this be a a very sober warning to us. 
the disciples attempted to form an opinion of Christ based upon their circumstances, what they saw, rather than what they knew of Christ and what they'd heard of him by faith. They attempted to ascertain, to define who this Jesus is by looking at their circumstances first and then saying, therefore, he doesn't care. Now, friends, there will be a massive, massive and often devastating problem anytime we take up our circumstances by the lens in which we attempt to think thoughts of God. Anytime you pick up your circumstances, look through them and say, therefore, God must be this because of that. We need to be seriously warned because the scriptures tell us to actually reverse the process. Impose what you know of God upon your circumstances and then draw your therefores. Friends, are you doing that right now? Are you attempting to make some sort of statement of who God is or even assess your circumstances because you are taking your circumstances as the lens by which you would seek to know something of God? Look at the foolishness of these disciples and their attempt to do so. Our inability or our unwillingness to see Christ as he is will always lead us to fear the wrong thing. Your inability or unwillingness to see Christ as he is will always lead you to fear the wrong thing. Did you notice the emphasis of Mark's narration here? In verse 40, it says they feared the storm. But in verse 41, they were filled with great fear as they stood in awe of Jesus. In other words, they were afraid of the storm, but overwhelmed with fear when they saw Christ. If you or I were the author of this story, I would bet more likely than not, we would want to write a story like this. Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples breathed easy, and great calm came over their hearts. But the scriptures don't say that. The scriptures say Jesus calmed the storm and the disciples disciples were filled with great fear. Jesus did not take away their fear. He maximized it. Do not overlook that. He did not say, dear, dear, sit down. I've got this. It's okay. He said, peace, be still. And they were more afraid. What an important lesson for us. You and I need more fear, not less. I need my fear of God maximized, not just my circumstances pacified. But how often is that exactly what we are pursuing God for? Just make it calm. And yet the disciples hear Christ see Christ's work, and their fear is actually elevated. Friends, there's something here for us to take note of, perhaps to be rebuked by, perhaps to be comforted in, perhaps to be encouraged in to press forward. Have you been tempted to domesticate the Lord Jesus? 
Have you been pleading with him even to still the stormy circumstances of your life when what you actually need is greater fear for who he is? How often does your prayer life or even just the running commentary in your head reflect this? Lord, I need a job. Do you fear me? Lord, my body is in pain. Yes. Do you fear me? Lord, my marriage, do you not care? Yes. Do you fear me? I believe in all of our needs, all of our trials, all of our difficulties, one of the best things we can pray for ourselves and for one another is not simply the pacification of our circumstances, the removal even of a particular circumstance, but to pray with great faith, Lord, cause these circumstances to maximize my fear of you so that I might trust you and rest in you as you are. Not fear less, fear more. Fear the right thing. Fear Christ. See, when Jesus says, peace, be still, when he commands the winds and speaks to the seas, he's not doing this so that the disciples would have an easier life. Don't misread the text. He's not doing this to give them calm seas so that they could gently paddle over to the other side. He speaks to the wind and to the waves so that they might have a greater sense of his authority. That's the reason he says, be still. He stills the raging seas and rebukes the wind so that they might have the right fear and the right one. So that they might know something more of him. So that they might know that he does what only God can do. Actually, what's happening right now, we have a perfect commentary on this very situation in Psalm 107. I believe what Jesus does and the way he does it, he has Psalm 107 in mind so that we would know the one who does this is Yahweh. Who is this one? He is God. Listen to the psalmist, Psalm 107, verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down into the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wits' end. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. The Lord did this. And as they are there in the boat, Jesus stands up and he commands the waves and the wind to be silent. And in the back of their minds, I only know of one person who can do this. His name is Yahweh. This is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God in our boat. And they were filled with great fear. Christ does what only God can do. And they hear that, they see that, 
And their response is, who then is this? We thought we knew him. Who then is this? There's more that Mark has to show about fearing the Lord in the coming sections, but we must begin here. Friend, when was the last time that you were in awe of the Lord Jesus? When was the last time you were forced to say, who then is this? Have you ever? Is your version of Jesus, your idea of this Jesus, the Messiah, something more, much more tame, more domesticated, even unbiblical? Listen to the response of these disciples who were in the boat with him. They were filled with great fear. Hold on to that because it's going to progress further. There's not only a lesson in the storm, but we're then moved in chapter 5 where we're told about this liberation from an unclean spirit that further clarifies. Look at verse 1. And they came to the other side of the sea to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles to pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Yet again, we learn that Jesus is true to his word because back in 435, when he said, let us cross over to the other side, he meant it. And here, Jesus takes his disciples to the southeast side of the Sea of Galilee to the country of the Gerasenes. This is Gentile country elsewhere referred to the region of the Decapolis or the Ten Cities. Now, to Jewish ears, hearing this narration and hearing not only the geography but what is about to come, Mark 5 would read like a horror story. Some of the most fearful things that you could ever encounter if you sought to be a faithful Jewish worshiper. Why? Because Jesus is in an unclean region. He's in Gentile territory. This is an unclean place. He's among the tombs where there's dead bodies forbidden in ceremonial law. There's unclean spirits. There's demons. There's even unclean animals because there's pigs. And for a traditional Jew, these are four good reasons to stay away. You don't go here. And yet Jesus pushes through all of that to get to one man. Notice the condition that we're given in the first five verses. The description that Mark gives is perhaps the most graphic and intensely visual in all of his gospel. The story is told in such a way, friends, it's intended to be felt. In verse 2, the man lives in a place surrounded by death. Every morning he would wake up and be reminded that he dwells where dead people are buried. Every night, if he could sleep, he would put his head down in a place where he is surrounded by corruption, decaying bodies. Verse 3, we're told he could not be restrained, not even with chains. Verse 4 uses words like bound and shackled and chained. 
And in verse 5, we're told that his torment is so bad that he often screams at the top of his lungs and would often cut himself to find some sort of relief from the torment he was in. And then there's this double emphasis, a repeated emphasis in verses 3 and 4, that no one could bind him and no one had the strength to subdue him. Meaning, this man is beyond healing, let alone simple restraint that would prevent further harm. We're just trying to tie him down. We can't even do that. Forget about him even ever being made whole or restored. This is a visual picture graphically displayed, portraying a helpless man in complete bondage. And to this, Jesus says, let's go there. Let's cross over. But in verse 6 through 13, there's a concession that is made. A concession that is made. As you read through the Gospel of Mark, you find that one of the themes of this narrative is the conflict between good and evil, between Christ and demonic powers, between Jesus and Satan. In Mark chapter 1, verse 12, really in Mark's prologue introduction, Jesus is driven into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan. In verse 21, Jesus goes into the synagogue and he's there confronted by a demonic presence. In verse 32, his house is surrounded by uh, sick and demonized people seeking healing. So it's for good reason when John would write his epistle in chapter 3, verse 8, one of the reasons that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And so when we read the Gospels, we are, we're getting an explicit picture of that. Christ has come to destroy the works of darkness. Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil. So the bottom line is that the scriptures make very clear that there is a demonic presence in this world and that all humanity is under the influence of his evil. And it quickly becomes clear that here in Mark 5, this is not your typical demoniac. This man is possessed by many demons, even reflected in the name given. We are legion. But even in this, even in this multitude of demonic habitation, Mark would have us know who's really in charge here. Because in verses 10 and verses 12, what do the demons do? They beg Jesus. And then in verse 13, they could only enter these pigs by Jesus' permission. The demons know their place. But this raises the issue. Is this the sort of fear and submission, the sort of fear that the demons exhibit here, the sort of fear that the Bible would compel us to have? They're begging Jesus. They're asking for permission. They know their place. When we hear fear of the Lord, is this the kind of fear that we're meant to have? James 2.19 says, you believe that, the, that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. This is interesting. It reminds us that there is a sort of fear that could know who God is, even recognize the authority that God rightly has, even feel some sense of obligation to this divine being, yet wants nothing to do with him. Keep that in mind because we're moving closer to understanding the sort of fear that the Bible commands us to have. 
That yes, the demons hear, yes, the demons believe, yes, they shudder, yes, they beg, yes, they ask for permission. But even in that, that fear is not the fear that we're compelled to have. Because it goes further when we see in verse 14, the concern of the people. We're given the condition of the man, the concession that's made, and this then verses 14 through 18, we're told of the concern of the people. Notice, again, the emphasis upon the response of fear. The herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country, and the people came out to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They responded in fear, but they want nothing to do with Jesus. The fear of Jesus and this restored man that's before them provoked them to beg Jesus to actually depart from their region. Think about this. They are more comfortable with the evil forces that take captive human beings and destroy animals than they are with the one who can cast them out. They can deal with this demon-possessed man and the wild man who lives in the tombs, cries out day and night, but they want to evict this Jesus and keep him on the other side of the sea. To be blunt, they are more at home with the power of Satan than the power of God. They consider Jesus to be more worrisome than a legion of demons. And this pitiful town becomes another example that Mark has given of the outsiders who see Jesus but really don't see who he is. They hear Jesus, but they're not hearing. Their hearts are hardened. What sort of fear is it that says, keep the demons but lose Jesus? We need to remember that not all fear of God is the sort of fear the Bible commands us to have. There are two kinds of fear. We could call one slavish fear, and we could call the other filial fear. Here's what we mean. Slavish fear sounds exactly like what it is, where a slave does what he's supposed to do out of the fear of punishment. It's the sort of fear that may see God for who he is and his authority and in his justice and his might, but has no mind of the mercy that's extended in Christ. No desire to trust in this mercy. It's a sort of fear that says, I'll toe the line, but just because I want my life to be okay, and I'm really kind of fearful of consequences. But I really want nothing to do with this God other than that he would just leave me alone. That's a slavish fear. That's not the fear that the Bible commends or commands. But there's another type of fear that we are exhorted again and again to have. Fear the Lord. What kind of fear? This is the fear that we could call filial fear. And by that we mean having to do with sonship, having to do with generation, having to do with a family bond. This sort of reverential fear has a focus upon a knowledge of God and beholding his majesty. And upon beholding him, there is this delightful 
acknowledgement and this glad understanding that God is majestic and this understanding causes us to bow before him in reverent worship. Listen to Wilhelmus Abrackel, the Dutch theologian and pastor, who said it this way, filial fear, it's a holy inclination of the heart generated by God in the hearts of his children, whereby they, out of reverence for God, take careful pains not to displease God and earnestly desire to please him in all things. We could say it like this, slavish fear hides from God, even suppresses the truth about God. But filial fear, biblical fear, runs towards God because it is this attitude of awe mixed with deep love. And to that, the Bible says, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord like that. And where do we find an example of this sort of filial fear? Well, in the commission that's given in verses 19 through 20. As he was getting into the boat, the man who'd been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled. And here we are given the sort of example, the sort of reverence, the sort of awe that the Bible commands us to have. This man displays the sort of reverential fear that is generated by God. It provokes him to draw near to Jesus. He desires to please him and even obey him. Now, is it any wonder that this man responds to Jesus in this way? It's Only when we begin to experience mercy, when we experience forgiveness, when we experience the kindness of God towards sinners, that we respond in filial fear. Psalm 130, verse 3, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? God, if you began to mark all of my iniquities, who among us could stand? Do you know verse 4? But with you, there is forgiveness, that you may be feared. There is a wonderful connection between seeing the holiness, justice, might of God, seeing ourselves as rebellious sinners, experiencing the wonderful forgiveness given to us in Christ, and responding then with the fear of God. There is forgiveness with you, that you may be feared. How do we then get this sort of fear that we need? What we're saying is that it only comes by experiencing mercy. That is the only way you will know this sort of fear. It only comes as you experience mercy. And this response, and in this response to this mercy and the authority of Christ, we have the first missionary sent to the region of Decapolis that would faithfully proclaim how much the Lord had done for him. The one who once had the legion, now sitting, clothed in his right mind, testifying how much the Lord had done for him. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life, the one that would turn many away from the snares of death. By steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Friends, that's just a a small sample from the book of Proverbs reminding us of the goodness of the fear of the Lord and the necessity of the fear of the Lord. Is it no wonder then that the fear of the Lord is such a foundational theme within the teaching of Scripture as this biblical fear is the necessary seedbed for the fruit of the gospel? The gospel bears fruit in the fear of the Lord. For without the fear of the Lord, let's be honest, the announcement of the gospel makes no sense. There's no urgency. There is no compulsion. Neither for our need for repentance, nor our assurance of forgiveness. If we do not have some sense of the fear of the Lord, the gospel is just some message, some suggestion, some philosophy, something that people trust in, but it's not good news. When I see myself as the creature and God as the sovereign creator, Paul's emphatic words on Mars Hill suddenly make sense. Do you remember what Paul preached? He looked upon the crowd before him and said, God commands all people everywhere to repent. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. The only way God can command repentance is if he has the authority to do so and we have the necessity to do so. Our sin, our corruption, stands before his burning holiness and the wrath of God and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. And in order for there to be good news, in order for the good news of forgiveness to settle down into our souls, and for the urgency of there to be felt that I must repent, we must have some sense of the grasp of the greatness of God's worth, and which is described as the fear of the Lord. Do you know something, anything, of the overwhelming majesty of Christ? Friends, we must be like the disciples who are led to this point to say, who then is this? Who then is this? Is that a part of your testimony? Have you been brought to that place to where you are in awe, where you know something of God's majesty and holiness and justice, and you know something of the corruption of your own heart, and you hear of the mercy that's extended to sinners in Christ, and you say, who then is this? It is through the fear of the Lord that we see the beauty of the gospel and the wonder of God's grace. Because it is this sort of filial fear that we've been talking about, the sort of fear that wells up from a heart that's overwhelmed by the gracious announcement of the gospel. Yes, God is infinitely just and holy and righteous, and yet he extends mercy to sinners. Who then is this? This promise of mercy and 
provision of, of forgiveness, it compels the convicted sinner not to flee from the presence of God, but to run to this God because of what they've just heard. And so we come to him, not on our own merit, not on our own attempts at obedience, but only through our mediator, the one who stands between us and the burning holiness of the righteousness of the triune God, Christ, our mediator, who's the prophet, the priest, the king. He's the head and the savior of the church. He's the heir of all things. He's the judge of the world. And this Jesus, he took upon himself a human nature. This Jesus, remember, tempted in all points, yet without sin, he perfectly fulfills the righteousness requirement of God's law and underwent the punishment that's due to us as his people, which we should have borne and suffered. He was made a sin and curse for us. He was crucified. He was dead. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again from the dead in the same body in which he suffered, which he ascended to heaven. Who then is this? We are the ones then, having heard and experienced that, who turn to our friends, to our co-workers, to our neighbors, to our children, And we say, let me tell you how much the Lord has done for me. Let me tell you how this great God has had mercy on me. That is what God does. That is who we are as his people. And that is how the fear of the Lord is most definitely the beginning of all wisdom. May the Lord continue to grow us in that fear that his mercy might be displayed. Father, we look to you this morning, confessing our great need to know more of you, that how often we come to you asking you to just pacify our circumstances. And Lord, we thank you for in your kindness and wisdom for those many ways that you do not, but that you continue to show yourself in such a way that we might grow in fear of you. Lord, would you help us in that? Help us to grow in our creatureliness, you as our creator, trusting you to be all wise, all sufficient, most holy, most just, and full of mercy. Lord, help us reveal the true, the risen Christ to our eyes before us. Make him plain by your word and by your spirit that you might lead us into our days and into our week in commitment and covenant with one another that we might live as those who know something and are growing in our understanding of the fear of the Lord. And we are overwhelmed with not only your majesty, but also your mercy. Help us in this, we pray, that Christ may be seen as glorious, that you may continue to send out the goodness of this message to the surrounding regions, that many more might hear of the mercy that you have upon sinners, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.